Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about capitalism in the realm of ideas. I'm going to be a little bit all over the map today, and that's intentionally. I'm coming into this particular program without any real notes. I've got some scribblings in front of me, capitalism in the realm of ideas, uh, righteousness, not just riches, uh, mosques being set up near ground zero in New York City, Florida church preacher and his uh, plan to burn the Quran. Is he uh, seeking publicity for himself? Or is he actually raising publicity for Islam by getting people to ask questions about the holy book of Islam and perhaps read it for the first time ever? I have a friend who put a picture online saying that he'd burned his copy of the Quran and then he had a, a DVD-ROM and he'd burned it to disc and made it portable. Um, is that just a backlash or is this some nefarious plot on the part of somebody who appears to be a country bumpkin from Florida but is in fact you know, disguising himself in a way to uh, spread Islam through the country by setting up a, a backlash, creating perhaps some uh, initial fervor for what will be, in just a few days, uh, Banned Books Week, the annual Banned Book Week in America. I've got some questions about restoring America's honor and the rallies around that. I'll, I'll definitely get to that. And I want to talk some about ministry and different definitions of the term ministry. So those are some of the notes that I've got in front of me, but I am truly going to just freeform and riff away at this one because I have one overriding central theme that permeates through all this stuff, but I don't know that I would ever, if I sat down and tried, be able to work this into one singular stream, one singular thought. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is I'm a little bit keyed up and maybe it'll show. The other one is that I think that the topic itself is so overwhelmingly large that maybe it's not possible to bring it all together in one sort of coherent message. Capitalism in the realm of ideas. I guess my number one beef is that we're hearing a lot of talk these days, and the talk has a lot to do with slogans and sloganeering. We are demonizing people with rhetoric about their socialist tendencies or their communist ideas or their, you know, a takeover of the government, their overthrow of our liberties, all these sort of slogans. And what I want to get that I'm not getting today and I'm not hearing today in a way I need to hear it is the meat behind these concepts. If you believe that capitalism is important, if you believe in the free marketplace, if this is the idea upon which you're hanging your hat, if we're going to make decisions about what we're going to do going forward in this country with things that are important, taxation, military spending, health care, uh, retirement, social security, if we're going to make a lot of these decisions based on rhetoric about what is socialist and what is capitalist, then I think we've got to be much more clear about our terminology. I'd prefer that it wasn't just a whole bunch of anecdotes, a whole bunch of testimonials, but I'd rather have that over just a bunch of catchphrases and sound bites with nothing behind them. So maybe I should start with restoring honor for America restoring America. I've got a little handout because I went to the frequently asked questions segment of the restoring honor rally for August 28th, 2010. And the questions that they chose to answer here is, uh, well, what is the event? Okay. Because really the whole point of the website, the whole point of the frequently asked questions page was to get people to either come to the event or to not criticize the event. Okay, so isn't this just a Tea Party rally disguised up as something about honor? And they said, uh, no, this is a non-political event. And then um, the next question, wait, it, this isn't political. So it's the same question twice. See what I'm getting at. And then uh, how much money are you making off this? This was a question apparently directed toward Glenn Beck on a Glenn Beck-supported website. And then the next question is, no, really, how much money are you making off this? So again, we get a lot of filler here. And some things that I think are some, somewhat disingenuous. Why is it happening on the anniversary of the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech? 
And the answer to that question on the website is that they didn't realize that the date was the same as the MLK anniversary until the media reported it. Well, Mr. Beck, Glenn Beck, you are the media. (laughs) You're the media. You're somebody who's doing something that you're expecting to be a media event. And I'm not sure whether a lot of people in this country should be insulted that somebody who purports to be a mouthpiece on behalf of the people was completely unaware of this particular moment in history. And a rally on that same place at that same site at that same time could be a problem. I'm not sure that the lack of awareness gives me as much comfort as you might hope that it would. The bigger issue, though, is there's a a handful of questions here. Some of them are asked multiple times, perhaps to make it look like there's multiple answers being provided, that there appear to be more answers than there are questions. But the questions I really want to ask are not being answered. So let me ask them, because I'm not hearing any answers from my friends, my family, people who are supposedly in the know about these things. What are we restoring America from? And what are we restoring America to? And while we're at it, since I'm not getting answers to these questions, why aren't we making ourselves clear? If something is important enough to say, it's important enough to say with clarity. Because a lot of this talk is a lot of buzzwords. It's buzzwords where the people who were invited to the rally, and I don't dispute the fact that it was a lot of folks who came, understand the code. And if you don't understand the code, it's okay if you wander away confused. Because you're not the person that this particular set of speakers was trying to talk to. And if you do understand the code and crack it, and call it what it is, then you might be ostracized for that as well. I'm not presuming that I know what the answer to the code is, but I want to raise a couple of questions about it, and then talk about why it's important. Because I don't believe anyone who says they believe in free market capitalism, who does not believe in capitalism in the realm of ideas. So, what are we restoring America from? What's the problem we're trying to solve? I'm pretty sure I feel comfortable saying that the problem is not a black man was elected to the White House. But you would understand why somebody might feel that way, that perhaps this code being so generic is um, a speech given on Martin Luther King's anniversary of his I Have a Dream speech is all about having a dream that we go back to that point in history before any element of Martin Luther King's dream was fulfilled. Again, for the record, I don't believe that's the idea that we're restoring America from. But what are we restoring America from? Are we looking to go back to a different period in time when um, gays and lesbians were were fully in the closet and under threat of violence, threat that they may lose their jobs, threat that they may be arrested, stayed there, knew their place, knew knew what they were allowed to do, knew what they weren't allowed to do. We have all that covered. Is that the problem that we're trying to restore America from and the solution we're trying to restore America to? Or was it really all about the military? In which case, maybe the idea is we'd like to restore America from a point in time when our military is engaged in all sorts of you know skirmishes here, skirmishes there, and back to a time when we were engaging in full-scale war with the threat of, of a nuclear element being introduced and committing all of our resources to one place, news on TV, coverage of the battlefield, that sort of thing. The, que- the reason I'm asking all these questions is I don't know the answer. And you would think that with all the television coverage, with a frequently asked questions page on a website, with all of the buzz, all of the talk, all of the arguments over how many people were there and and whether the Park Service knows how to count and all that other sort of stuff, that we could at least answer that question. And to me, it begs the question that maybe we can't answer the question because we're not making ourselves clear on purpose. And that is what has me angry. You see, it's pretty much a socialist tactic to hide behind the people. It's, it's really straightforward, black letter, political theory, socialism, especially socialism in the realm of a totalitarian regime, to say, I cannot be questioned because I'm speaking for the people. Where populism and socialism meet, you have this sort of idea that it isn't necessary for me to make myself clear because I speak for the people. If you don't understand what it is, comrade, then you perhaps aren't speaking for the people yourself. Well, here I've just taken this entire rally, which theoretically was a celebration of America, America's military, America's history, America's honor, and our capitalist roots, and our commitment to going forward in a free market society, and I've painted it with a very socialist brush. 
Now, I don't do that proudly, and I'm not even saying that I'm fully committed to the idea that I just insinuated. But what I do want to call attention to is how easy it is to do. So how do we cure this? How do we stop the name-calling? How do we stop the firmly entrenched positions? How do we get people to come together and find some common ground and resolve our differences? Well, I'm not here to teach the basics of discourse and debate. There may be a time when I get to that. I think I need a few more programs, maybe a few more like this under my belt, where people can get a sense that there is some passion there and that it's not all carefully thought out positions based on things either in my past or in even the distant past of humanity where I've come to a theological understanding or a sociological understanding. It's not always that safe, but I'm not ready to talk about debate and how to do it. I think really the question right now is a question about whether to do it. Because for all the talk about the importance of capitalism and healthcare, or the importance of, you know, is supporting capitalist structures by reducing taxation, how about a little bit of capitalism in the realm of ideas? How about a little bit of me not having to buy anything you tell me unless you put up a shop, do some advertising, price things right, let me pick it up, touch it, sniff it, smell it, take it home for a trial, let me have your idea for a little while before I have to buy it. I don't have to buy your idea up front because you put an American flag sticker on it. If you want me to buy something, you better make it worth my while because I am the consumer. And as much as principles of capitalism include the idea of let the buyer beware. They also include the idea that the customer is always right. And if you say, you know what, I got a car out there on the lot. It's fantastic. It was made in America. It's got a huge legacy. Uh, you know, it's, it only has 20,000 miles on it. Its last owner was a little old lady from Pasadena, but I'm not going to let you look at it. You have to buy it first. I'm not going to let you take it for a test drive. Under no circumstances am I going to let you take this for a test drive. You have to buy it first. Sorry, that's not a capitalist concept. Capitalism in the realm of ideas has a lot more to do with respecting the free market. And the free market says, you know what? There's room for someone in the, in, in the conversation with a socialist argument. There is room for somebody in the conversation who is more committed to the idea of Marx and Engels than any American founding father. There is plenty of room for reason in the conversation. Is there room for God? There better be. And maybe the restoring America people have a point if God is not welcome to be introduced into the conversation. If someone's faith is not allowed to be a part of it, that's a problem. But you know what? I encounter relatively few situations where people's faith are not welcome to be part of the conversation in the United States of America. You don't see it. You hear a lot of talk about it, but you very, very rarely see it. What you tend to see instead are people who get a little bit upset when their faith isn't the only thing we're talking about. But for it to be an element of what we're talking about, I'm all in favor of that, because I'm in favor of the free market of ideas. But I do have a faith-based question to raise, particularly to those you know, patriots, fellow patriots who are Christian, who have a big problem with the idea that a Muslim group would want to build a mosque anywhere in New York City within, I don't know, driving distance of ground zero. Maybe two miles is too close. Maybe two miles is actually um, too far for the group. Maybe the group would have preferred to have had a mosque built right on the site. Um, these are issues that I think we need to be talking about in a much more civil way with a lot less hyperbole, with no threats of book burning, with no threats of violence and deportations, that we need to be calm about it. We need to be clear about it. And the one thing that I will say is that the person in the conversation who needs to feel the most threatened is the person in the conversation who probably has the least amount of faith. I was watching a news clip that sort of tried to connect the dots between the guy in Florida and his book-burning game plan and the people who were trying to build the mosque in New York City and the folks uh, who were you know, standing in opposition to the idea that, a, that there should be a mosque at all or at least not a mosque there and, of course, failing to recognize the fact that if more than just Christians died in those plane crashes and the, Mus the Muslims who died in the, plane, in the plane crashes weren't all the terrorists, some of them were victims. That the beautiful thing about the United States of America is if you take a random shot at an American, 
the odds are you're finding you're finding people as victims who have a Jewish heritage and a Muslim heritage and Christian heritage, of course. But even within the realm of Christianity, you're seeing people who come not just from, you know, from a European descendancy, but from a variety of European descendancies and, of course, African descendancies as well. Take a look at the just the names on the roster of an international team like the u.s soccer the u.s men's soccer team and what you will see is a variety of colors a variety of hairstyles a variety of names implying that to be an american doesn't look like any one thing so is this debate implying that if you are an american citizen who is a muslim by faith who has a friend also a muslim by faith who died in the you know world trade center plane crash attacks that you don't deserve any patriotic memory that we might be taking off our hat putting a hand over our heart and, and and praying in a moment of silence for everything that happened on that day and for the people who died on that day but those prayers don't count for you because of your faith these are questions that have to be asked because they're raised so i saw this news coverage and somebody at work was watching the same the same show that i was it was kind of in the in the break room and uh, i was getting a cup of ice i just stumbled across it actually and he told me that um he was opposed to the mosque in, in New York City as well. And he clearly was telling me as a Christian. I mean, he's there reading a Bible, watching the TV on his break. And I think he was telling me because he could tell that I, I'm also a Christian. So I told him, I said, uh, you know, the problem that I've got with all this is not Islam versus Christianity. It's not capitalism versus socialism. It's faith. As a Christian, I have enough faith that I am not in the least bit intimidated by the presence of a mosque anywhere in the greater New York metropolitan area. It doesn't bother me. And he asked me what I meant by Christian. I told him that I thought it was a strange question, but that I also thought I understood where he was heading, and that to me, Christian's really easy. Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. That's a Christian and he told me that there perhaps might be a difference between somebody who's trying to do what Jesus said and somebody who's trying to follow the historic legacy of the European conquering of the uh, old world and the new world, making sure that the spread of Christianity held at bay what otherwise would have been a Muslim takeover of the world. I said, yeah, I'm not that sort of Christian at all. I'm not a world conquest type of Christian. He said he felt that both were important. He said both were important because if it weren't for the Crusades, first time in my life I think I've ever heard anybody praise the Crusades, just for the record. He said that without the Crusades, we would all be Muslims right now. I looked at him and I said, no, I would be a Christian, whether in a majority or whether in a minority, whether with the support of government-led religion or whether in a free society where my religious beliefs have to fare for themselves, I would be on the Jesus side of Christianity. So let me connect this back to capitalism in just a second. I think you're pretty easy to see where I'm going. But first, I did answer his question about what Jesus would do. And I said, you know what? As Christians, we make a gigantic mistake when we tell people on the one hand that we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and yet we are afraid of any other idea competing. That if someone expresses a different point of view on the streets of New York City, that Christianity cannot possibly prevail. I told my Sunday school class, still kind of in a, in a rage about this, um, this past weekend, that when you threaten to burn the Quran, um, it implies that you're afraid of it. It makes the Bible look like it's a book that can't be true or can't be regarded as highly as it, it is so clearly regarded. Because the idea is that if, if this holy book is you know, placed in a ring head to head for 15 rounds with the holy book that the Christians hold dear, that the Bible has no shot. Well, I don't believe that because I believe in capitalism in the realm of ideas that in the open marketplace, the best idea will survive and the best idea will thrive and survive whether there's a mosque near ground zero or whether the mosque is across the river in New Jersey. It absolutely doesn't matter. And in fact, the best thing that can possibly happen for Christians and Muslims is that for there to be some opportunity, any opportunity to get together in the same place and have conversations. Now, I've always felt that historically Islam was a little bit afraid of this. And if you look at the way Islam has spread, typically Islam has not been about an open dialogue of ideas. But here we are with a Christianity that seems every bit as afraid as Islam has historically been. What we need is that free marketplace 
where two stores can line up right next to each other or right across the street from each other, selling the exact same type of item and let the best retailer survive. It only works, though, if you have free markets. This is the argument that people have made in favor of things like NAFTA. Now, whatever your opinion of NAFTA may be, I'm not here to talk about that. I want to talk about the idea behind it, though. And the idea is that it is not right for one side of the economic fence to be propped up with all kinds of government subsidies and for it to be fighting off the free marketplace ideas of a competing product with taxes and tariffs. That the right game plan is let the two stores open. Even if they're on different sides of the street, even if they're from different states, even if they're from different countries, let the two stores open, let the two stores do their business in the manner that they see fit. And as long as they're not breaking any laws, as long as they're not ripping off and defrauding customers, the right product will thrive. So what does that have to do with this concept of restoring America's honor? Well, how is the right product supposed to thrive if we're not allowed to test drive the car? How is a Christian supposed to share his witness and his faith with someone on the street when the person on the street is standing there saying, well, I want to believe you, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, but I know that the only reason that you're sharing your faith with me is that you've successfully prevented anyone else from sharing their ideas with you. And there's the problem. So let me uh, toss out a few ideas there, kind of connect this maybe back to our founding fathers a little bit. There's a couple of things from Thomas Jefferson I'd like to share, because we often, so here, you know, we're we restoring America's honor to. Are we restoring America's honor all the way back to the time of the Founding Fathers? What did they think about the idea that maybe there could be two completely different faiths side by side with each other? What did the Founding Fathers think about whether it was okay for there to be people in your society who rejected not just your religion, but any concept of religion? <laughs> I have a couple of quotes from Thomas Jefferson. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Or, if anything pass in a religious meeting seditiously or contrary to the public peace, let it be punished in the same manner and no otherwise as it had happened in a fair or a market, or fix reason firmly in her seat and call to her tribunal every fact, every opinion, question with boldness even the existence of a God, because if there be one, he must approve the homage of reason more than blindfolded fear. Do not be frightened from this inquiry by any fear of its consequences. <laughs> If nothing else, clearly Jefferson is arguing there for a free market of ideas, for the concept that it is okay for people to believe otherwise. That's pretty much carte blanche First Amendment. There's no question what that says. But Jefferson's also pretty clear, as one of the authors of these founding documents, that it's perfectly okay if people do not believe at all. This from a man who referred to Providence, the Almighty, and a Creator multiple times in the Declaration of Independence. So I stand on both sides of this issue, and I don't think that it's at all inconsistent. I think the inconsistency are people who choose an entrenched side and sell out America along the way. I had a friend, and I'll go into detail on this someday when I uh, decide I'm ready to talk about the Pledge of Allegiance and a few other things. I had a friend who told me that the, uh, the under God quote had no business in the Pledge of Allegiance, and uh, his reasoning wasn't that, well, it's a fairly recent addition to the document or that it's potentially divisive. His reason for saying that under God didn't belong in the Pledge of, of Allegiance was that God had no place in schools whatsoever. And I stopped him there and I said, you know what, I'm not unsympathetic to your point of view. I hear you. I get what you're saying. However, you can't quote Thomas Jefferson to me. And tell me that Thomas Jefferson's point of view is that the Declaration of Independence should never be learned, taught, read in public schools. 
I'm reasonably sure that Jefferson would have been totally okay with students studying the Declaration of Independence, that he wouldn't have had any, any difficulty with the notion that students might even be forced to memorize the document. And yet, if you hold up a standard toward the Pledge of Allegiance, which if applied equally and rationally, here's reason again, to the Declaration of Independence, would rule out the teaching of the Declaration of Independence, then I got a problem with you. I mean, this is some of the thing that the restoring honor people are worried about. It's one thing to say, hey, proselytizing has no place in public school. It's a different thing to say that we need to go on some sort of witch hunt and expunge all mention of deity from public school because it's virtually impossible to study documents like the Declaration of Independence. Are you going to go to the Declaration of Independence with a black marker and write out, you know, cross out the four sections you don't like? Or is it enough for us to say that we've got the same author, the same founding father, who in his same, in my opinion, quite brilliant mind, has conceived of both these concepts at once? That he's got a certain set of beliefs, he's comfortable if people have a different set of beliefs, and he firmly believes that in the free market of ideas, those beliefs are going to play out with each other in a way that will come to a good conclusion. We don't have that faith in America anymore. We don't have that faith in God anymore. We claim that we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ will come at the end of the book of Revelations, reign supreme, sit on the judgment seat, take over government, every knee will bow, every wrong will be set right. Why are we terrified of a mosque in New York City? Somebody needs to help me understand as true Christians, as people with faith in God, who believe in biblical inerrancy, who've read the entire Bible all the way through, what in the world are you afraid of? You have a document that tells you everything you need to know, not just about a great deal of recorded history, perhaps not all of it, and a great deal about what's going to come, perhaps not, you know, with names, dates, and places, but you have nothing to be afraid of. Why are you acting afraid? In the free market of ideas, there's a certain amount to be said about confidence. I'm, going to more, I'm more likely to buy a car from somebody who can confidently document its track record. How well was it cared for? How many previous owners were there? Somebody who gets all nervous when I start asking questions about how many previous owners there are is not going to sell me a car. Not that I believe that Christianity is for sale, but I believe that there's a certain amount of America's legacy that might have been up for sale late in the month of August. And the reason I say that something might have been for sale is that I wasn't getting the whole story. I was only getting the headlines. I wasn't getting all the pictures that were taken that day. I was only given one picture, cropped carefully and with a very well-written caption. And I've got a problem with that. Hello, you wonderful lot. I'm Elton McManus, and I'm here to promote an apotheosis of a bombast. But instead of me waffling on about it, I decided to put a couple of clips together just to show you what it's all about. Enjoy! All I remember is uh, Penelope Pitstop did my brain in. It was like a dark, little dark kind of rocket car, it looked yeah. like. We actually had Stephen Hawking on the show. Tater chip looks like Jesus, or... Were you a BBC One or an ITV man? Got no shirt on. Me and a friend got uh, drunk one night and we started writing down inappropriate Mr. Men names. <laughs> it's Mr. Man and Little Miss, those ones you're talking yeah. about? Little Miss Whore. Bring me Penelope Pitstop. So there you have it, guys. If you do like it, join myself and Scott Copperman at bombastpodcast.podbean.com or find us somewhere in iTunes. Thanks. One of the big talking points that has gone behind some of the political rallies that we've seen is this notion of being taxed enough already, taxed unfairly. And it bothers me a little bit when I see religious belief wrapped up in this idea of, of unfettered capitalism and freedom from obligation, freedom from temptation, because I personally want to see a Christianity that is a lot more interested in righteousness than it is in riches. I want to see people who are going to use their resources for some greater good. It's ironic that at times when you, when you talk to people with these firmly held Christian beliefs, that they're very committed to the idea of taking care of the poor because Jesus made it clear that we're supposed to. They just don't want to take care of the poor by engaging in a government program to take care of the poor. But when you ask them what they're doing instead of the government program to take care of the poor, sometimes you hear more crickets chirping than anything else. There was an exercise, and I'll introduce this again at some other time. 
but there was an exercise that that I ran through uh, the first time I ever did it was the notion of the federal government giving me a $500 tax break because they were going to get rid of a key social program that perhaps helped take care of uh, people who were mentally disabled leaving hospital care or psychiatric hospital care and going into a halfway house. But the government was going to give me a $500 tax break, but they were no longer funding the halfway house. So if the state government comes in and restores the funding and the service of the halfway house by raising my taxes $500, did I get a tax break? Well, this is almost an IQ test, to be honest with you, because if you have a certain politically conservative mindset about taxes and taxation and the size of the federal government, you might have a really good notion that you did get a $500 tax break. But from where I sit as a citizen and as a taxpayer, I don't think I got that tax break. I moved the $500 check from one account to another. As far as a tax break goes, though, I'm still in the same amount of money and out the same amount of money that I was to begin with. Of course, there's a solution to that. The state can choose not to fund the program either, in which case perhaps the responsibility would go to county or city government. But if they raise my taxes $500 to pay for this, I'm still in the same boat I was in before. Here's where it gets tricky for Christians, though, and maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe everybody who's got a strong sense of social justice and morality, regardless of their religious beliefs, would be in the exact same boat. What happens if no level of government takes care of this pressing social need? Do we have mentally unstable homeless people roaming our streets, or do we allow private points of light to step in and make a difference? And if we do that, if we allow those private points of light to step in and make a difference, how does that get paid for? Does somebody tell you about the plight of, of this particular program and the, the desperate need and, and ask for you to pass the hat at church? Does your larger, broader church denomination, like the Roman Catholic Diocese or you know, some conglomeration of non-denominational or denominational churches, um, decide to use some of their budgetary resources to help fund this? Do we not end up spending the same $500 or facing some very serious social consequences anyway? I think we do. Let's take this thing from this perspective to a global perspective. Because a lot of this restoring America's honor idea has a lot to do with drawing a very clear distinction between who is American and who is not. And I don't argue with that. I have a pretty good feel for the fact that understanding who's an American is pretty important and that we should be taking care of the needs of Americans perhaps before we take care of the needs of anybody else. However, there's a certain amount of risk in being the richest, most powerful nation in the world and not caring two beans about the needs of everybody else. And I think that if, if only from a Christian perspective, if there's an area of great need, we might want to address it. So what happens if we make sure that we are no longer using American taxpayer money to take care of the medical needs of illegal aliens and we send the entire lock stock of them back to the country from which they came, and their medical needs were perhaps unable to be fully and capably addressed down there. Would we as a nation, because we're not a bad group of people, we're looking to restore our honor for, for crying out loud, we have some honor. Would we then spend as much money or almost as much money giving foreign aid to those countries so that those countries could take care of their own people? And how is that different from my halfway house and my $500 tax break? What happened to restoring America's honor to a point in time where we told the world, send me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the hopeless, the, the tempest-tossed, send them to me. Our Statue of Liberty will light a lamp outside our golden doors. Are we restoring America back to that point in American history? Or are we restoring America to sometime before then because that was a mistake too? What are we talking about doing? Because I don't see much difference in the importance of my taxpayer dollar. I would rather have my taxpayer dollar go to sending money overseas to provide for the health and general welfare of the poorest of the poorest people, especially if those countries are neighbors to me. Neighbors like Mexico, for example, or other middle Latin American countries. I would rather send aid there to take care of the people that Jesus wants me to take care of as a Christian than I would to wait until social unrest breaks out under revolution and we end up sending troops 
and perhaps even a lot more money than the aid would have required in the first place, gunning those people down on the street because they might just have Marxist, communist, or socialist ideas. It's a notion of capitalism in the realm of ideas to say, hey, let's talk about this. Because if we're serious about not taking care of the medical needs of people who have come to our shores illegally, there's consequences there. And what are those consequences and what are we going to do about it? It is not enough to draw a line between legal and illegal aliens slash visitors, I guess for the legals. It's not enough. More has to be said because there's an underlying question, a Christian question about what it means to reach out to the sick, to the homeless, to the imprisoned, the least of these. Another area where socialism is the hot topic today is in the realm of health care, because there's some health care ideas that don't strike us as being particularly capitalist. The notion that perhaps everybody should have to have health care. Well, now the government's telling me what to do. The notion that if your employer doesn't provide or you cannot afford your employer's insurance, or if you choose not to go with your employer, but then for whatever reason can't find private insurance, that maybe the government should have some sort of plan. We can call it socialism all we want to, but there's a heck of a lot of Americans who are covered under a semi-socialist methodology already. Might be called Medicare, might be called Medicaid, but make no bones about it. The U.S. federal government is well involved in the socialized medicine business today. I heard an interview, it's a pretty old interview, maybe even a year and a half by now, with a scholar named Uwe Reinhardt. And he had made an analogy about this notion of free market capitalism and the way we manage healthcare services. And he called out the cognitive dissonance between these two ideas. One saying, I'm an American and I shouldn't be forced to buy health insurance. I shouldn't be forced to spend that money. It's my right to not have that coverage. Because being forced to have that coverage is some sort of socialism, especially being forced to have that coverage is some sort of government program where we fear a government takeover of industry. Now, government takeover of medicine does strike a little bit of fear. I think we need to do this wisely if we're gonna if we're gonna go down that path at all. Government dabbling in the insurance business, well, you know, again, to a certain degree, we spend a heck of a lot of money on national defense. We have a lot of weapons. We're always thinking of new weapon systems. To some degree, the government's already involved in various forms of insurance, if you get what I'm saying. But um, Reinhardt compared the right to not have to be buying health care, the right to not be forced into to picking up insurance, with the expectation we have on the other side of the coin that an ambulance is going to come to my house if I fall down the stairs. The ambulance is going to take me to the emergency room, and no matter how long it takes, no matter how long I have to wait, I'm going to get care in that emergency room. And the more dire my circumstances, the more threatened my health is, the more likely that I'm going to get served faster. No one has a good emergency room experience. Uh, the bottom line is the fact that you're there is a bad enough thing to make it hard to manage. No one has a good time in the emergency room. But I think the theory is that the more trouble you're in, the quicker you'll get service. But here's the question. How can you justify the notion that you shouldn't have to pay into a system and yet at the same time have this, this incredible sense of entitlement that that same system you refuse to support financially has an obligation to bail you out on the other side? Now, I'm not going to use the whole show talking about this. It's too complex of an issue. What I'm saying is these are conversations that we need to have. Let me make a quick comparison between the idea of socialism and the idea of capitalism. And what I want to do is I want to quickly ask a question of where social Darwinism lands on the scale. Because there's a lot of people whose sense of the, uh, their sense that they prefer capitalism to socialism as an idea is built on very Christian grounds. That despite the fact that a lot of passages in the books of Acts and Hebrews has a very socialist bent to it, that perhaps based on tradition, based on certain things in the American experience, that they feel very strongly that capitalism is a Christian idea and socialism is an anti-Christian idea. And it's easy to understand where that might come from. You need only look at the attitude of communist China and communist Russia, the USSR, toward religion to get the sense that certain ideas which are closer to the socialist side of the spectrum that, that fall on that end of the political spectrum internationally are more hostile to religion. But when it comes to the ideas of Darwinism, you know, Darwinism is the whole survival of the fittest, 
you know, the, the process of weeding out, however you want to word it, that notion of true social Darwinism has an interesting play to it because it goes, in my mind, something like this. If you choose not to get the health care, then you probably shouldn't be entitled to the medical service. In other words, it's a distinctly um, anti-socialist idea, which may or may not make it a capitalist idea, but it's a very anti-socialist idea that says, listen, if you don't pay, you don't play. Socialism's got a different attitude. Socialism has an attitude that everybody's in the pool, everybody's going to get taken care of. And to be honest, from practical experience, we've seen lots of societies that have done this badly, meaning that everybody's in the pool and everybody's getting taken care of, and the standard by which they're getting taken care of is abominable. <laughs> it's horrible. There's no justification for it. But if it worked, you'd say, well, hang on a second. Everybody's in, everybody's covered. But the capitalist notion would be, hang on a second. You didn't pay for the service. You don't get the service. So here's what a true social Darwinist method of handling um, emergency healthcare services would look like. Uh, basically, if you've fallen down the stairs and you busted a bone and uh, the bone's sticking out of your skin and you've done enough damage to your arteries that you're beginning to bleed, that you're basically going to bleed to death at the bottom of those stairs because you didn't buy the insurance. Therefore, you are not entitled to the ambulance ride. Therefore, you are not, not entitled to the emergency room service. And the only hope for you is if a family member happens to be able to perform surgery on you somewhere probably inside your own home. So what I'm getting at here, the conversation we're not having, if we throw words like socialist at people and dismiss very complex and intricate concepts, is that we need to have a discussion about whether or not it makes sense for a product that is not bought on the free market in a free market manner should be held to the standard of the rest of free market capitalism. In other words, we don't buy health and medical services the way we buy everything else. We don't decide that we have enough money and we've always wanted to try a kidney transplant, so we're going to go shop around, see where the best place to gather that experience is, because I had a friend who had a kidney transplant, and you know he got a lot of attention for that. That was kind of cool. Well, no, it's not the way it works. Nobody who's mentally healthy goes in for these kinds of discretionary, I want to do this just because it's going to be cool kind of situations. Capitalism works when there's some discretion in the spending. When you have a seller and you have a buyer and the buyer wants to buy something and the seller wants to sell him something. But most of the time, good quality medical care involves a completely different paradigm. Nobody wants people to get sick, but they do. And we take care of them. The person who is sick doesn't want to be sick. And they want to get well as quickly as they can and they're not all that interested in shopping around. Part of the reason that we're comfortable with the insurance industry we have today is that the insurance industry works insofar as most people don't really want to shop around anyway. We become very comfortable letting somebody who really isn't even our doctor tell us what we can and can't get done medically because we're not interested in being a buyer in a capitalist system. So if the system doesn't function on capitalist principles, from either the seller's perspective or the buyer's perspective, we have to ask a lot more questions about whether it makes sense for us to even use terminology like socialism when it comes to the way that we dispense medicine. Now, I'm not pretending to offer a solution here. I am one of the few people in my entire family who has never worked in a hospital. So I don't have that direct frontline experience in understanding how any of it works. I spend as little time in hospitals as I can, because I am a very good representative of the American consumer. This is not a store I ever want to shop at. So the concept of me using my capitalist free market instincts to get the best deal I can and to shop around and to make it, it doesn't function that way. And we're not helping when we talk about it in just those terms. So where does this all take us? Where do we land as a result of this? Well, I still don't have the answers to my questions about whether we're going to restore America to something that I want America to be restored to. As I've mentioned before, perhaps in the episode about the decades, um, I don't think that there were those good old days. Those good old days are not as good as we say they were. There were problems back then. Um, the number of people who were legally immigrating was higher than we're willing to tolerate based on the number of illegal immigrants that we complain about today. We have this notion that when you come to the United States of America, you're three weeks of intense study away from being able to speak English well enough to function. You know, there are some communities 
in the northern part of the Midwest where there are second and third generation people who still speak German or Norwegian or Swedish much, much better than they speak English. My grandmother from the Cajun part of Louisiana spoke French so much better than English and actually, on some level, I think secretly, secretly resented the fact that we didn't learn French well enough to speak French with her. So we have these, these ideas that just don't work. They don't make sense. They don't reflect the need of the consumer. And they don't answer the questions that you have to answer if you want to be serious about capitalism. Capitalism, which is an idea that I'm very in favor of, free market of ideas, means that you're going to level off those cases where you've got an inappropriate imbalance in the system. So okay, what does that mean to have this imbalance in the system? It means something like this. If we're propping up Christianity and supporting it at the expense of all other ideas because you're not allowed to put a mosque there and we're not allowed to have you know, any sort of other religious belief and you almost have to pretend to be a religious believer in order to be a credible candidate for national office, if we're doing that, we don't have a capitalist system. We're guilty of putting up all the same kinds of tariffs and taxes and you know, anti-competitive policies in the area of ideas that we complain about some of these quote-unquote third world countries putting in our way when it comes to marketplaces. If you're serious about capitalism, you're serious about free markets. And if you're serious about free markets, you're serious about the free exchange of ideas. That means that it's okay for somebody to have a different idea of what the ideal America is now and used to be. And it's not a problem for somebody to have a different religious perspective. I've made a mention on a different program as a guest speaker, and it's worth mentioning again here. I'll put more color into it later. But one of the biggest concerns I have in the realm of Christianity is that I didn't hear very many Christian men and women speaking out as Christians against the pastor in Florida who spouted off about how what a good idea it was to burn somebody else's religious texts. Your political responses, your political pundits, and I have no doubt that a lot of those politicians were very Christian people with very Christian motivations behind their insistence that this was a bad plan and it didn't make any sense. But in the marketplace of ideas, I didn't hear enough Christians talk about their faith and how their faith is fully capable of sharing time and space with somebody with different points of view. Christianity may at some point have another major schism facing us. We had a schism right around the year 1000 between Eastern Orthodoxy, what would become Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism. We had one in the 1500s where we have the Protestant Reformation and all the different Protestant denominations today. Well, here we are. It's been 500 years since Martin Luther made a few declarations, ruffle a few feathers. Maybe we're on the verge of another schism. Here's what I think that schism looks like, and here's why it scares me. When my friend uh, spoke about the dichotomy of being a follower of Christ versus being somebody who's in favor of Christian power over governmental organizations, particularly in Europe and uh, in North America, I didn't hear him really talking about a current version of Christianity versus an older version of Christianity. What I heard him talking about is two different forms of ministry. One form of ministry, spelled M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y, is doing things the way Jesus said. It's taking care of the homeless, taking care of the hungry, visiting those who are sick and in prison. It's doing for the least of these as you would do for him. It's Christian ministry. What's the other form of ministry? Well, the other form of ministry has much more of a political outlook, much more interested in its power, much more interested in control, not the least bit interested in any sort of Islamic ideas encroaching into what we consider somehow now to be a sacred Christian shrine in New York City. Not sure exactly how that happened. That form of ministry would be spelled M-E-N-A-C-E-T-R-Y, ministry. That's a form of ministry that is interested in crowding out people with competing notions, of forcing people who don't have a religious faith to at least pretend they do, or they may not be rationed the kind of resources or access that everyone else is. And if you don't believe that it's true, try running for national political office as either a Republican or a Democrat while being an avowed atheist. Good luck getting support from either one of your political parties. And it's not that those political parties have some sort of a religious outlook that's really important, at least not in the sense of what I would call a genuine faith. It's that they're not stupid. They understand that to actually ring the bell politically on a national level, you've got to 
you've got to qualify because there's this group of politically active Christians whose first and primary goal is not feeding the hungry, providing medical care for those in desperate need. Their first notion is making sure that we have divided the sheep from the goats, that God has said that's his job, but we've taken it on as our job, that God has said that he will come sit on the seat of government, stand in judgment over the world. But there are Christians out there who've decided that's their job instead. That is a menace, M-E-N-A-C-E. And that's a type of ministry that I want no part of. In the realm of ideas, if we believe in capitalism, if we believe in a free market, then I've got the freedom to call the two businesses I've shopped at what they are. This one here is meek. It's humble. It doesn't want wealth, power, fame, riches, control. It simply seeks righteousness and faith. This other one, the one that you see far too often on television, the one that seems to drive a lot of our political decisions about things like how do we manage healthcare, how do we manage integration, how do we manage our military, that one is a completely different form of religious belief. It calls itself Christian, and it says it's engaged in ministry, but it's not the same thing. In the realm of political ideas, I challenge anyone to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, you might disagree with me. You might think I'm being a little bit too harsh, but what is your choice? What is your decision about that? Is your decision to wish that I hadn't spoken at all or to seek to silence me? Or is your decision to engage me in what could hopefully be a calm and pleasant, more calm than this, more pleasant than this, exchange of ideas? If you are seething right now with any sort of resentment that makes you feel like you wish this guy didn't have a microphone and he shouldn't be allowed to say those things, you may be a lot of things, but you're not a capitalist. You are not a capitalist in the realm of free market ideas. That's something you may have to live with. Of course, if you have a different opinion, I could be reached at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. These show notes will be there. Comments are enabled. I also can be reached on email at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. That's G-R-E-G, Greg. I truly appreciate your listening.